Well, this is going to be an interesting Sunday. I have uh, never preached the section of Daniel that I'm about to preach this morning, maybe because I'm kind of scared of it, because it's, it's going to feel like you're drinking out of a fire hose. <laughs> and so I've, I've done everything I know to do to make this into something that, uh, that you're going to be able to process and... But you need to recognize the goal is not for you to be able to leave here and say, oh, yes, that's pseudo Smerties. That was this year. And, you know, Euergetes, he came here. And, oh, Bernice, can you believe her? I'm not asking you to, to get there. I am asking you to walk away from here being able to see that God's word is incredibly reliable. You can count on it. And if you take that away, you will have done good. Now, because some of you will say, well, I want to know all that history. In two weeks, not, not this week, but the following week, I will make available on the website a complete rundown of the scriptures and then the historical events that answer to that. So you'll be able to access that and, and be able to make much of it. Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12 provide the last known glimpse of Daniel's life. We're actually dialed into, and he's probably in his mid-80s. We don't know exactly, but this is near the end, and this is the last glimpse of Daniel before we will see him again in heaven. Now, Daniel, at this point in his life, he's, like I say, mid-80s, he can actually look back, and he can see all the amazing ways in which God has worked in his life, and he can draw encouragement from the fact that his was a life well lived for God. But in his case, he is able to not just look back, but he can look forward. He actually got to look into the future, into what's coming after him. And on five occasions, God gave him a glimpse of things that will happen after his life. And so this morning, we are going to, beginning in chapter 11, it's going to take us three weeks to get through chapter 11, so we'll do it this Sunday, next Sunday, and then a Sunday after Easter. Uh, we're going to see, look into the future with Daniel and connect the dots because some of what Daniel saw was future for him, but is in the past for us. And so we're going to have a, hopefully, a rich time seeing some of those dot connections. Now, I need to review a little bit. First, let's just look back at his life. And chapters 1 through 6, the first half of the book of Daniel, tell us about his life. And he lived during the time of Nebuchadnezzar and then Emil Marduk and Nabonidus, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and his son, Belshazzar. And they concluded the Babylonian reign. Then Darius, also known as Cyrus, came in and launched the Medo-Persian era, where Daniel was there for a few of the early years of Darius. So if we take the book, and you've seen these uh, slides before, the choice food, chapter 1, that occurs right around 605 B.C., and then Nebuchadnezzar's dream is shortly after that. So these are in the early years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Chapter 3, the fiery furnace, which was Daniel's three friends kind of crisis moment, 
That also happened in the early years of Nebuchadnezzar. The pride pill, where God helps Nebuchadnezzar come to a point of recognizing God and who he is, that happens in chapter 4, which is closer to the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Then chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 5 is the writing on the wall. That was actually the last day of Belshazzar's reign, and he died that night. And then chapter 6 is an incident that occurred in the early years of Darius's reign when Daniel was in the lion's den. So that's kind of the history, the looking back story of Daniel. The looking forward part, there are prophetic chapters, chapters 7 through 12. And we saw in chapter 7 that there are four beasts that will be uh, concluded by a super horn which will be taken down by a son of man or the son of man. And that vision was given to him in the first year of Nabonidus slash Belshazzar's reign. Chapter 8, we saw two beasts and a little horn, and that little horn was broken, and that happened in year 3 of Nabonidus Belshazzar's reign. Then chapter 9 was 77s to answered prayer. We looked at that two weeks ago. And this happened in the first year of Cyrus's reign. Then chapters 10, 11, and 12, it's all one vision, which is what we're in the process of working through, happened in year three of Cyrus's reign. So those are where the prophecies occurred in terms of in Daniel's story. But let's push that over to the side. And now let's stand where Daniel is here at the maybe third year or so of Cyrus's reign and look into the future. I guess if I go the direction you're going, look into the future and see what he saw. And in Daniel 11, verses 1 through 20, he is going to look ahead to 360 years of history. He's actually going to stand at a place where he's able to look and say, here's what happened here, here's what happened here, here's what happened here. And he's going to do that for 360 years of our history. Then in chapter 11, verses 21 through 35, he's going to zero in for a very close look at an 11-year period that was from 175 to 164 B.C. So we're going to, next week, we're going to be looking at that. Then, after Easter sometime, we will look at Daniel 11, verses 36 through 45, which is a glimpse of something that happens in the, quote, last years that has not happened yet. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, this look into the future is actually intended us, is tended to show us how to prevail in the crisis, how to prevail in the crucible. And each of these sections is going to help us with that. For example, what we're going to look at today is designed to help you be able to say, God has perfect insight into the future. Hence, trust him. Uh, in the second section that we look at, where you see what happens during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, 175 to 164, it's almost like you're going to see, here's an initial battle. And here's who the winners are, here's who the losers are, here's how that happened. And then in the last battle that is yet to come, here is kind of what to expect, what can you look forward to. I like to think of this as kind of a, 
Oh, like sports preparation. The first part of this vision, verses 1 through 20, is about trust the coach. He knows what he's doing. He's, he's, he's got this figured out. Trust him. Then the next 11 years are a skirmish in which we are provided with information that isn't provided in verses 1 through 20, which is where did people go wrong? Where did they do what is right? And so we're going to get some insight. We're going to kind of have a skirmish, and then we're going to be able to say, okay, here's what they did good. Here's not so good. And then the Super Bowl, the ultimate game, is yet coming, and we're going to learn some things in that section that are critical to success in something that is coming. So anyway, we're going to talk about why we can trust the coach, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Think of this as a trust booster shot. Uh, God knows what the future holds, and if you understand that, I'm holding my shot arm here, if you understand that, then you can trust him with your tomorrow, and he will be more than capable. Now, in order to accomplish this, we're going to do this. I've invited some people to come join me, and so readers, if you'll come on up. Chris Marino is going to read scripture, and what he's going to do is read verse by verse, and then Christy Bicknell and Larry Nobles are going to be our resident historians. And so what's going to happen is Chris is going to read a verse. Now, we're not going to show you the verses on the, on the screen. I'm going to show you an animation that is my attempt to try and make sense of this. So that's what you'll be seeing. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, you're welcome to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. And that's where he's going to be reading. Now, along the way, I will make a few comments here and there, but largely this will be Chris reads a scripture. And he may not read the whole verse in one reading. He may read parts of it. And then Christy or Larry are going to read you from uh, Jim's fabulous history. Uh, here's a summary of what happened that answers to that. Now, this is based on Jerome and other historians and so on, but it's an attempt to summarize. Here's what happened that answers to that. And I think what you're going to see is it's incredible. I mean, think about this for a minute. Let's assume that someone came to North America on the Mayflower. And then when they were about in their mid-80s, they were able to look into the future and say, oh, yes, there's going to be a north and south, but the south is going to lose. But the leader of the north will not last after that and, and make statements like that. That's what's going on here in this passage. You're going to see things that are no less specific and no, no less unbelievable than someone from the Mayflower in his latter years predicting events, in fact, 60 of them, predicting 60 events culminating in today. So that's, that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to go join my friends up here. Everybody ready? ready. Okay, let me get my book out here so I can follow you. I'm kind of nervous because I'm having to do what the, uh, what the tech guys do. I'm having to keep up with them and make sure I get this just right. So anyway, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get this. All right, here we go. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. 
Two years prior to delivering this message to Daniel, this warrior angel provided assistance to Michael at a critical juncture in Israel's history, the transition from Babylonian to Medo-Persian supremacy. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. From Cyrus to Alexander. Cyrus was followed by Cambyses, Pseudo-Smerdis, and Darius Hystaspes. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. Then came Xerxes, through the conquest of Lydia, Babylonia, and Egypt, and a severe taxation program by his predecessors, Xerxes amassed considerable wealth. Esther 1, 1 through 12 describes a lavish 180-day feast hosted by Xerxes for all his leaders. As soon as he becomes strong enough through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. After four years of preparation and considerable PR to strengthen the resolve of his nation, Xerxes mounted a campaign against Greece to avenge a previous defeat by his father. He only succeeded, however, in giving Greece a score to settle. Now, one of the things I want you to notice is in the lower right, uh, do you see that number six right there? What you're gonna see as we go along is a, an accumulated uh, series of numbers. So for example, thus far, and we're only on verse two, we have actually seen six identifiable points of history. Namely, we saw the four kings who were gonna follow Cyrus. Then we saw that in Xerxes' case, he had a campaign against Greece, which you'll see in a moment has some profound implications, and that he also became quite wealthy. So those are six ways in which the biblical account is confirmed by scripture. So at each point along the, the process of this presentation, you're gonna see that number growing, and it's eventually gonna to get to 60, because there are 60 points of confirmation between history and what was predicted in Daniel 11, verses one through 20. So keep your eye on that as we go along. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Greece never forgot what Xerxes did. Alexander the Great was the one to settle the score. He retaliated and seized Persia for Greece. He demonstrated amazing strength and ability by his swift conquest of the then known world in a single campaign. His leadership has scarcely been equaled in history. He maintained an army in the field 1,000 miles from home for a period that lasted years. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out to the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. On the pinnacle of complete world domination, Alexander died at the age of 32. After several years of contention, four of Alexander's generals gained positions of dominance as three potential heirs were all subsequently murdered. After a prolonged struggle, the four generals were able to each carve from Alexander's empire a domain for themselves, although none commanded the level of respect nor breadth of authority enjoyed by Alexander. So the, 
the commentary or the prophecy that Daniel was providing is going to shift now and it's going to focus on the north and the, what are called the north and the south. These are two of the four domains that were carved out of Alexander's empire. Let me show you a picture. I love this map. I realize you can't read the print, but you can see the picture. This shows you the domain of Alexander the Great. This is all the territory that he conquered. I found this map, which I love it. It's from, I think, 1912 or something like that. And it also shows all of the travels of Alexander the Great. There's a black line in there that shows you where he went. And so he covered all of this territory, and this was his domain. Now, he never made it back to Greece. He was on the return leg. He arrived at Babylon, and he died at the age of 32. And then the fighting broke out among his generals, and two of those generals carved out two empires. Uh, the one that we're going to call the North was by far the largest one, and it's called the North because it was centered above Jerusalem. And then the South, which was for the most part Egypt, was basically the area that was the far western, southwestern quadrant of Alexander's empire. Right in the middle, in the area that both lay claim to, is Israel. In other words, Israel was caught in this tug of war, as you're going to see, between the north and the south. So from Alexander to Antiochus, we're really going to zero in on the south and the north. So you're going to see two columns that represent the different leaders and so on and, and what they're doing. And so we're ready to roll. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. From Alexander to Antiochus, the Syrian division north of Palestine and the Egyptian division to the south were of greatest significance for Israel and therefore come up for close inspection. Egypt is the south. Ptolemy Sotor was a very capable general under Alexander who was made satrap of Egypt upon Alexander's death. He proclaimed himself king of Egypt in 304 BC and ruled until 283 BC. Seleucius Nicator served Ptolemy Sotar until a window of opportunity presented itself, allowing him to relocate and proclaim himself king of the largest section of Alexander's empire, which included Babylonia, Syria, and Media. And after some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. About 250 BC, 54 years after Ptolemy's and Seleucus' declarations in 304 BC, the progeny of these original kings, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, son of Ptolemy I, and Antiochus II Theos, grandson of Seleucus, sought to end their bitter fighting by establishing an alliance. Berenice, daughter of Ptolemy II, was given in marriage to Antiochus II, who was 23 years younger than Ptolemy II, to seal this alliance. But she will not retain her position of power. When Ptolemy II died, Berenice's dad, two years later, 
Antiochus II put her away and took back his former wife, Laodicea. Nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up, along with those who brought her in, and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. Laodicea, fearing further fickleness by her husband, poisoned Antiochus II, had Berenice, her attendants, and her son by Antiochus killed, and proclaimed her own son, Seleucus II Callinicus, as king. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Berenice had a brother in Egypt who became king, taking the name Ptolemy III, Eurogetes. He marched on Syria to avenge the death of his sister. He penetrated as far as the Tigris River and moved where he wished unopposed. The, lungs, the young Seleucus II, Callinicus, escaped death by staying in the interior of Asia Minor. And also their gods, with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt. The extent of an ancient king's victory is often measured by his ability to plunder the defeated people. Jerome reports that Ptolemy III brought home 40,000 talents of silver and 2,500 precious vessels and images of the gods. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Ptolemy III did not follow up on his conquest with an assimilation plan, although Palestine was retained under his rule. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. In about 240 BC, Seleucus Callinicus attempted to return attack on Egypt, but was unsuccessful. And his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. Seleucus Callinicus had two sons, Seleucus III, Seranus, and Antiochus III, the Great. The first was killed in a campaign in Asia Minor which concluded his short reign, and his younger brother became king at the age of 18. And one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The second son, whose realm was somewhat impoverished from the humiliations suffered at the hands of Ptolemy III, was determined to turn the tables. He moved with a large force and succeeded in extending control as far as the Egyptian frontier post of Raphia, where a major battle with Egypt took place. And the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. Ptolemy IV, Philopater, son of Ptolemy Aratus, and something of a party boy and layabout. But when Antiochus, when Antiochus took Raphia, Ptolemy roused himself and assembled a grand army, 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, 73 elephants, and secured a decisive victory over Antiochus, who had assembled his own equally impressive army. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall. 
yet he will not prevail. Ptolemy killed 10,000 infantry, 300 cavalry, and five elephants in the army of Antiochus. His natural predisposition to pride and indolence were displayed in boasting matched by an absence of follow-through. Palestine was returned to his sovereignty. So I'm going to uh, give Larry a minute to kind of adjust your mic a little bit and uh, make a few comments. So Israel was dominated by Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Seleucia, which was the north, then Egypt, the south, then <laughs> Seleucia, the north, once again. Basically, they, they're kind of like a ping-pong ball in control, being controlled by these other nations. And that continued right up to the time of Jesus, that they were constantly experiencing something that was so different from what they had experienced when they first came into the land from Egypt. Now, a remnant returned to Israel in 537 B.C., so right about the time that Daniel is near the end a group of about 45,000 were able to go back to Babylon. But their experience was nothing like what they had experienced prior to the Babylonian captivity. They were a subservient nation, always under the heel of someone else. And as it's going to turn out, you're going to see more of that history playing out here. In verses 13 through 19 of this account, it zeroes in for a close look on someone named Antiochus the Great, whose activities profoundly affected Israel. Now, this is not Antiochus the Epiphanes, who's the really bad guy, but we're getting warmed up to that with what we're going to read in the remaining verses. So, here we go. For the king of the north will raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. After his defeat at Raphia, Antiochus turned his attention to the east between 212 and 204 BC. When Ptolemy Philopater died and was succeeded by Ptolemy V Epiphanes, age four, Antiochus discerned a window of opportunity to return to the west. So 14 years after his defeat at the hands of Ptolemy Philopater, Antiochus attacked with a battle-hardened army even larger than the one from his first engagement with Egypt. Now, in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. Antiochus found an ally in Philip V of Macedonia, who seized Egyptian overseas holdings. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Even some among the Jews who had languished under Egyptian domination while having the battlefront traverse their land sought to provide aid to Antiochus by provisioning his army and elephants. Their initiative seems to have failed to accomplish its objective, whatever it was, even though Palestine did come under the rule of Antiochus. Peace would prove elusive despite the fact that under Antiochus III, Egypt lost sovereignty over Palestine. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege mound, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. In the campaign of 203 BC, Antiochus's successfully raised siege 
works against Sidon. By 199 BC, he held most of Palestine. Scopus, one of Egypt's ablest generals, was eventually forced to seek refuge in Sidon. Three crack Egyptian generals were displaced to lift the siege, but to no avail. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. When Sidon fell, it marked the end of Egyptian domination of Palestine. Antiochus proved unstoppable, secured Palestine for himself, and established his absolute sovereignty over it. And he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. From this position of power, Antiochus proposed a peace treaty with Ptolemy Epiphanes that he presented as perfectly equitable. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. Under the terms of this agreement, he gave his daughter, the first daughter, Cleopatra, to Ptolemy in 197 BC. The marriage didn't take place until Ptolemy was 14 in 193 BC. Antiochus thought this scheme would reinforce a stability in his relations with Egypt, which would allow him to turn his attention toward Rome. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Antiochus's plan was foiled for the fact that Cleopatra, his daughter, became a devoted wife to Ptolemy. Eventually, Egypt actually allied itself with Rome against Antiochus. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. Once the treaty was signed in 197 BC, Antiochus turned his desire northwards. He met with initial success, seizing numerous islands of the Aegean, along with substantial portions of Asia Minor and Greece. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. When Antiochus began to nibble away at Greece, Rome commissioned the general Scipio to deal with this eastern upstart's contempt for Rome. The humiliation intended for Rome was turned into humiliation for Antiochus when he was forced to abandon Asia Minor through the Peace of Apamea, established in 188 BC. So, he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Antiochus returned to his homeland, having been frustrated in his exploits. His grandiose plans now utter failures. He died one year later in 187 BC. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. His son, Seleucus IV Philopater, inherited a sizable land and an empty treasury. He dispatched leaders who could compel the payment of taxes. Heliodorus was the prime minister sent to seize the funds of the temple treasury in Jerusalem. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. But when Seleucus died prematurely and under suspicious circumstances, possibly having been poisoned by Heliodorus, the crisis for Israel now abated somewhat. And in his place, a despicable person will arise, 
on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Introducing Antiochus. The son of Seleucus IV, Demetrius Soter, was the rightful heir to the throne, but he had been taken hostage to Rome prior to the death of Seleucus. So when Antiochus Epiphanes, a schemer without a conscience and a younger brother of Seleucus, heard of it in Athens, he rushed to Antioch in Syria to have himself declared as king. <laughs> well, as you can see, if you've been following the tally, we're at number 60. In other words, Daniel predicted in 539, 537, somewhere in there, B.C., here is what is going to happen, and then here is what is going to happen, and then here is what is going to happen. And 60 times, he's right. Nailed it. Is that not stunning? I mean, <laughs> who do you know who can accurately make 60 precise predictions of future events 360 years into the future? I know one. Our God can. And he is worthy of our trust because Daniel 1, uh, Daniel 11, 1 through 20 proves that he is an amazing God in his ability to be able to see what's coming so perfectly. Isn't this stunning to look at? I'm amazed. Well, thanks to our readers. Thanks for your help. I really appreciate the assist. Would you like to read those names? <laughs> the level of prophetic precision in Daniel, it causes some people to say, there's no way. It had to have been written after the fact. I mean, no way somebody can get 360 years into the future. Nobody on the Mayflower is going to be able to predict events, 60 of them, between now and 2023. Couldn't happen. Had to been done after the fact. So, for example, one of the views is, well, Daniel was written by a 2nd century B.C. writer. Not, not Daniel, but some Daniel wannabe. But he was writing that to encourage Israel, to, to encourage them, you know, God's in control, God's got this. Now, you, I'm not making this up. Here's a quote from one such viewpoint, and there are many. In fact, there are more commentaries on Daniel that take this view than there are commentaries that get it right. Oops, I've kind of shown you my hand, but there it is. Though written as it is referred to the future, as if it referred to the future, it was, and here's the exact quote, known history cast in the form of prophecy and it may very well be that the more instructed readers of the book were quite aware of this. I mean, there's no way somebody could get that right. Now, again, God can get it right. But no way. So it had to have been written after the fact. And the majority of interpreters, modern interpreters, not conservative interpreters, take that view. There is just one problem with that rule. Jesus disagrees. <laughs> he does not take that view. Now, here's a, here's a quote. Here's Jesus. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which, by the way, is an event that is described later in chapter 11, the very chapter we're reading. Now, it's described two other places in Daniel, but 
One of the places is 11. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through, get this, Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. According to Jesus, Daniel is a prophet. And he uses prophetes, the same word that is used for all the other prophets. Yes, I understand that in a Jewish Bible, he is included in the historical section, not the prophetic section. But Jesus is telling us the correct ID on Daniel is he is a prophet. And by the way, what he did is no different than how prophecy works. Let me show you a glimpse. This is from Revelation 22.6. It says, uh, and I'm just quoting this, and he, which refers to one of the bowl-bearing angels, said to me, these words are faithful and true. All this material that I've given you is faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. You see the sequence there? God says, angel, go talk to John. Give him the information. And it is faithful and true. According to Jesus, Daniel 11 actually prophesies some events that can be clearly connected to future history. Basically, what he's saying is, when you see this happen, a specific course of action is required. Now, I'm not going to get into all that. All I want you to see is that as far as Jesus is concerned, Daniel is a prophet. And you see the proof of it in what you've just heard 60 different times. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. How much more faithful and true can you get? Now, you need to understand our adversary doesn't want you to understand what we've just read. He actually commissioned some of his fallen angels to keep this angel from coming to Daniel to give him this information. Well, you got to wonder, why? Why is this so important? You're going to find out fully in the weeks to come, but I want you to understand this. It's important for you to understand what we've read so far in order for you to be able to say God's word about the future is 100% reliable. You can trust it. Prophecy is faithful and true. Raising doubts and questions about what God has said has been part of Satan's strategy from the beginning. Oh, has God said that when you eat of that? Oh, no, you'll become wise. Daniel 11 is going to unlock events from the past, but also some events in the future. And it is reliable. It is faithful and true. And I look forward to seeing ways in which you've hopefully seen the coach is trustworthy. Next week, we're going to learn from our next skirmish and then go from there. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you first 
for giving us overwhelming evidence that Daniel's prophecy is faithful and true. Uh, thank you for giving him through the angel what you did that we can compare to actual events and come away going spot on. Thank you that we can see who you are and glorify you as the God who knows all things, who dwells outside of time. Father, we also want to ask for you to use the verses to come to help us to prepare for what is coming. I pray that next week we've learned from an incident, a chapter in the past, where Israel did something's right, got something's wrong. Father, would you help us learn from them and then help us learn from the remainder of chapter 11 and chapter 12 what we need to do to get it right in light of what's coming. Father, we want to be people who are overcomers in Christ and we're pleading for your help toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen.